Hello and welcome to Theology Matters. This is Dr. John Clark. And today we want to continue our study on eternal security. And uh, as we said uh, in the last study, we want to consider some objections to eternal security, some objectionable passages. Um, some would say, uh, you know, maybe through a certain sin uh, or a certain consistency of sin, a believer could lose their salvation, while others might say that through sin, a like a lifestyle or a pattern, that a person proves they n- never were saved. And so both of these lines of thinking end up in the same place, and that is that my faithfulness in life is necessary uh, to observe and uh, to, to prove or to disprove whether or not I, I do possess salvation. And so we want to look at some passages uh, in this section on the Gospels, from the Gospels that provide some objectionable, uh, maybe, you know, may cause some objections in people's minds as it relates to eternal security or whether or not one can have assurance. And just as a quick review, when we talk about eternal security, we're using the definition from our friends at Duluth Bible Church, uh, which reads this, eternal security means that one who has been genuinely saved by God's grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone shall never be in danger of God's condemnation or loss of his salvation, but are kept forever saved and secure by God's grace and power. And so when we talk about eternal security, we're talking about or we're using that term to reflect the certainty of a person's salvation from God's viewpoint, whereas assurance of salvation reflects the certainty of a person's salvation from man's viewpoint. Now, your human experience and my human experience is an unreliable final authority for God's truth. People say, you know, all the time, I once knew a person who claimed to be saved, but then he did XYZ sin or he began to, to live XYZ way, and thus he could not be a Christian. And the point is, when we come to the Word of God, we don't want to trust our own evaluation of things. We want to trust in the evaluation of God in his word as recorded in his word. And so that's the whole goal of this series of studies is to align our thinking and align our understanding and our evaluation with God's evaluation of eternal salvation as it relates to us and how and how you receive it, which is, again, simple faith at a moment in time in the finished work of Jesus Christ who died for your sins and rose again. Now, one of the most common uh, passages that that people bring up in terms of objections to eternal security is a passage found in Matthew chapter 7 and in verse 20. And just to kind of read the punchline and then we'll come back and look at this passage. This is the, the way this works is if someone says, well, um, somebody claims they were saved, but now they're living XYZ uh, way or they're committing XYZ sin then typically this verse will come up in Matthew 7:20 therefore by their fruits you will know them and the implication is that if someone is a true believer and again I hate to use those qualifications but that's how people use the term they'll say if someone's a true believer then their fruits uh, in other words they should have good works that are visible in their life and so that begs the question is Matthew 7.20, is that what Matthew 7.20 teaches? Is that what the context is? Well, I think some overall context of the book of Matthew uh, would be in order here before we dive into this difficult passage. Uh, Again, the sermon recorded in Matthew 5 through 7 is known as the Sermon on the Mount, and it was given 
during the dispensation of law. Now, some may be confused initially because we've turned the page into the New Testament, uh, and for many, that's synonymous with the church age, but we're not talking about church age truth necessarily. Now, there's some overarching principles uh, on righteousness that are found in the Sermon on the Mount, um, but basically, we need to understand that the sermon recorded here was given during the dispensation of law, and primarily, when we look at the audience of this message, the message was directed toward Jesus's disciples. We see that in Matthew 5, 1 through 2, where he says, And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, and then you've got a bunch of red ink on your page all the way through the end of chapter 7. And um, right at the end of chapter 7, when the red ink ends, we also gather this information regarding the audience. And it says, And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as having authority and not as the scribes. And so what we gather from Jesus's audience is that his ministry had not yet turned its attention to a Gentile audience. So this is very important to understand. In fact, when we jump ahead a couple of chapters in Matthew 10, verses 5 through 7, Jesus is still instructing his disciples to avoid the Gentiles and the Samaritans to preach the gospel of the kingdom. Look at Matthew chapter 10, verses 5 through 7. These 12 Jesus sent out and commanded them, saying, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter a city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. So this is a far cry from the Great Commission we find later in Matthew 28. Jesus' focus at this point in his ministry is still the presentation of the long-awaited and promised Jewish earthly kingdom to the Jewish nation. However, as I mentioned earlier, although the Sermon on the Mount has a distinctly Jewish audience, there are certain righteous principles and what we would call transdispensational principles, which can be applied even in the church age. This is why Romans uh, chapter 15, 4 is, is very pertinent as to this point, uh, especially when we get into truth that, that may be not uh, directly applicable in every dispensation. But Romans 15, 4 says this, for whatever things were written before were written for our learning that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. And so our problems with the Sermon on the Mount is that we do not typically spend an adequate amount of time on the interpretation of the text. Remember, when we talk about interpretation, we're talking about the the author or the speaker's originally intended message for the original audience. And many times we come to the Sermon on the Mount, we don't take into account the interpretation, and we jump right into the application of the text for us. And this just ends up causing a lot of confusion. So that's kind of an overall general context for Matthew chapter 7, verse 20. More specific context um, for seven, uh, chapter 7, 20, uh, we want to pick up in verse 15. And what we need to understand is that in the age of, uh, in every age of human history, starting in the Garden of Eden with the serpent, there's truth and error. Teachers on both sides try to influence people with their message, and Jesus uh, is warning of this possibility when we get into Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 20. In fact, the presence of false teachers is one of the reasons 
that the way which leads to life is described as difficult in verse 13, because um, many people are getting confused. We know that passage in Matthew 7, 13 and 14, which says, enter by the narrow gate for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. And part of the reason for that difficulty is because of the presence of false teachers. And so in verses 15 through 20, um, we have a description really of, of one of three, what I would call pairs comparisons, uh, comparison of two things that Jesus uses in this section to show that choices have consequences. Those two ways uh, are found in verse 13 and 14. There, there are two ways, the broad and the narrow way. Verses 15 through 20, there are two types of teachers. There's false prophets, and then there's uh, true prophets. And then in verses 24 through 27, we see that there are two kinds of builders. And then Jesus gives an example of the consequences of choosing incorrectly uh, in verses 21 through 23. So that's kind of the overarching context of this particular section. And so, again, verse 20 is often quoted to describe how you can tell if someone is a true believer or not. So the problem with this interpretation is that it's not speaking of Christians, but rather it's speaking of false prophets. And this is what we see um, Jesus says specifically in verse 15, beware of false prophets, not beware of false Christians. And then we want to see how the false prophets described here. But look at verse 15, beware of false prophets, who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit and a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. And so how are they described? Well, the first description is in verse 15, they are outwardly wearing sheep's clothing. And what that means is that externally they look good. They, they look like a genuine religious leader who is one of the true disciples of Jesus Christ. And so when people apply this passage, by the way, to Christians, what are they typically saying? They're actually saying they don't look good on the outside. They're, they're actually saying that they look bad outwardly and they're still doing sinful things, and thus they must, must not be saved. And see, it's the total opposite here. The, the group that Jesus is speaking about, these false prophets, are, are evil inwardly, but they actually look good on the outside. When people misuse this verse, they're saying that people are claiming to be Christians, but they look bad on the outside. That, In other words, their, their outward sinful activity is betraying them. That's not what Jesus is saying here. He's saying their outward activity actually looks good. They look like sheep. And so it's very important to see the distinction there. Um, Secondly, another description, it says, inwardly, they are ravenous wolves. So even though they look good on the outside and appear to be a genuine disciple, they are very dangerous. And we know that false prophets and false teachers' ultimate goal is their own success. They don't even care who they might harm in the process. We also see that the third description of these false prophets is that they can be known by their fruits. And he says that multiple times in this section between verses 15 and 20. And so what are the fruits of a false prophet? Well, it's definitely not their lives. How do we know that? Because they look like sheep. They look like the real deal. So he's not talking about this external behavior 
measurement, which again is how this verse is often misapplied. Their fruit, in this case, is their false teaching. And so when a prophet or teacher's teaching or prophecy does not line up with the word of God, they are to be rejected as producing false fruit and being a bad tree. Now, who might Jesus be talking about here in terms of context? He's talking to the Jewish people. Who do you think he's referring to? Well, the Pharisees, because they look what? Holy. They sound holy. They smell holy. They, they talk holy, but they're still inadequate to make it to heaven on their own. That's what Matthew 5.20 says, right? He says, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And so that is the first passage we want to consider in the gospel of Matthew. The second one, which I'll introduce in this section and we'll cover more completely in the following section, is known as the unpardonable sin. And that's found in Matthew chapter 12, uh, verse 31. And let's, again, we'll just go straight to the punchline here and then we'll kind of develop the context uh, around this. But Matthew 12, 31 says, Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. And so this is known, obviously, as the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit or the unpardonable sin, which many people think you could commit and lose your salvation. So there's a lot of, obviously, there's a lot of tremendous confusion regarding this verse. And no one seems to be able to identify what this sin is when they quote this verse. However, they believe it's big enough to cost someone their salvation. I oftentimes have personal conversations with people and they'll they'll say that, you know, you can lose your salvation if you commit the unpardonable sin. And I and I oftentimes ask them, what is that? You know, I've seen I've seen that in the Bible. What is that? Can you define it? And they and I've never had a person be able to tell me what it is. They oftentimes their response is, I don't know what it is, but you don't want to do it. And that's kind of their approach to this whole passage. So again, we want to consider the context of this passage as we answer this question in the next session.